Welcome back to the Teacher Talk Podcast, where Paul Kelly and Jay Pollock discuss literature in the high school classroom. We are right in the middle of our Romeo and Juliet series. We did an introduction. We did Act 1. This is Act 2 of our Romeo and Juliet uh, close analysis. Big questions, big scenes, big characters to think about as you go into teaching Romeo and Juliet. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy. All right. Do you want to start us off with a poem today, Jay? Sure. This is uh, Tony Hoagland's one of my favorite contemporary poets. He actually just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, this is his collection called Unincorporated Persons in the Late Honda Dynasty. <laughs> and this is a poem about new love, new experiences, uh, and it's rooted in him and his romantic partner watching a nature documentary. So I just thought, since Romeo and Juliet are new loves, this would be a quirky, interesting hook for today. This is called Romantic Moment by Tony Hoagland. After seeing the nature documentary, we walked down Canyon Road onto the plaza of art galleries and high-end clothing stores where the orange trees are fragrant in the summer night and the smooth adobe walls glow flesh-like in the dark. It's just our second date and we sit down on a bench, holding hands, not looking at each other. And if I were a bull penguin right now, I would lean over and vomit softly into the mouth of my beloved. And if I were a peacock, I'd flex my gluteal muscles to erect and spread the quills of my Cinemax tail. If she were a female walking stick bug, she might insert her hypodermic proboscis delicately into my neck and inject me with a rich hormonal sedative before attaching her egg sac to my thoracic undercarriage. And if I were a young chimpanzee, I would break off a nearby tree limb and smash all of the windows in the plaza jewelry stores. And if she were a Brazilian leopard frog, she would wrap her impressive tongue three times around my right thigh and pummel me lightly against the surface of our pond and I would know her feelings were sincere. Instead, we sit a while in silence until she remarks that in the relative context of tortoises and iguanas, human males seem to be actually rather expressive. And I say that female crocodiles really don't receive enough credit for their gentleness. Then, she suggests that it is time for us to go get some ice cream cones and eat them. <laughs> Tony Hoagland? Tony Hoagland. The totally romantic, worth checking out. The Romantic Moment. He has my favorite title for a contemporary poetry book. It's called What Narcissism Means to Me. <laughs> so how do you not buy a book with that title? So anyway, he's worth checking oh, out. That's great. Yeah. That's clickbait you can get behind. I like that. <laughs> what narcissism means right? to me. It's yeah. perfect. It's brilliant. Thank you for that, uh, Jay. And uh, it is really a go along with the uh, podcast poem um, because we're talking about love and um, um, dating rituals, I suppose, in their uh, essential forms. So this is act two of our uh, Romeo and Juliet series, our series on, on the play Romeo and Juliet. We did an introductory podcast. We did act one uh, previously. Now we're on to act, uh, act two. We're going to use our same framework that we use for act one uh, for act two, which is to ask three questions. What's obvious but essential? 
in Romeo and Juliet Act Two, Second, um, what is uh, subtle but poignant in Act Two, And then finally, what lingering or nagging questions remain for you, Jay, for me, um, as, we, as we continue to teach this book year on year? All right, so uh, let's start off with our, um, uh, with, our first, with our first question. What's obvious uh, but essential? Um, we might have the same one. Well, I think we might have similar ones uh, throughout. I was thinking that as I was writing mine up, but having mm-hmm. not talked to you, you know, we'll, we'll just have to find out in real time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mine relates to the one I had for Act 1, actually, which was about Romeo being authentic, but I saved... Uh, uh, Juliet, we didn't really talk about her last time mm. because actually it's kind of the same thing for Juliet. Were you talking about Juliet? Yeah, I just have the balcony scene in general, but oh, I, you know, I can't, we can't cover and reflect on all of it. So <clears throat> if you wanted to go first and just tell me, you know, tell us what you're, what you're thinking about, I can, I can maybe yeah. veer, veer off of that a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah, I went with Juliet. The obvious, but I think essential is, is Juliet in this and the more and more I think about this and teach it Juliet is 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 enormously important in this play and in some ways I think a a stronger character a better person uh, than Romeo so I had for Romeo in act one uh, the obvious but essential is that Romeo is authentic person for Juliet I don't want to use that same word and I chose another word that might sound a little sickly but I'm going to go with it that Juliet is sincere Mm-hmm. That Juliet is sincere, and I mean it in the best, uh, in, in the best possible sense. Um, by which I mean, she sincerely feels true love. She feels the the, the passions that she feels, mm-hmm. and she's capable of having that passionate emotional experience. But many people are, you know, capable of being sincere, of, of sincerely, you know, feeling you know, sadness or compassion. But what she has also is she's possessed of a resolve. All right. That I think that that reality demands of passion. Okay. So I'm going to say along with it's one thing to be sincere, to sincerely feel bad for people starving in, you know, Eastern Europe. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There is another thing to realize what that means. If you really feel that, right. Mm. That means um, either you have to stop thinking about it or you're going to need to do something or stop doing something in your life um, to uh, address it. Um, Juliet uh, has both of those things, I think. So one, she's sincere, truly capable of feeling. Two, possessed of a resolve, that reality, she lives in reality, that uh, that reality demands of, 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 of her passion. And that's, um, and that's what I'm struck by, by that balcony by all the back and forth, there's so many striking things in it, but that's what I want to pull out is, is her resolve. I don't know. Is that touchdown for you? Uh, yeah. Juliet's resolve, like her, she's in eighth grade, Paul. <laughs> she, yeah. She's no. probably not allowed to go to the mall with her yeah. friends yet. <laughs> yeah. No, you know what I mean? Like just contextually, yeah. I know, yeah. I know we're in a different mm. era where that's people right. married young. Like right. I, I get it, but right. it's just blow it blows my mind. Yeah. It's significant that she's, uh, not in eighth grade. If she were in our eighth grade system, she would yeah. not be this person. Yeah, the parents would the mean. parents would have taken the kids away long before yeah. the, the yeah. state. I'm mean, sorry, the state would have taken the kids away. Yeah, I think. But I think maybe the line that gets me in this, um, the line I would go to um, maybe first for this possessed of a resolve that reality demands a passion, um, is um, 
when she, you remember that uh, that part of the balcony scene when, when she says, you know, she's apologizing that Romeo overheard her uh, confessing her love. She didn't mean to be. She said, I could be, uh, she said, I, I, could, I could be more strange if you want, you know, as, right. as I probably should have been. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I can do that if you want to, but I don't, I, I don't need to. I mean exactly, I mean exactly what I say. Mm. Um, and... And she says, um, trust me, gentlemen, I'll prove to be more true than those that are smarter to be more strange or uh, wise enough to be more strange. I'm not remembering the line. Yep. Exactly. Right. You remember that line? And that's yeah. that, that's that, um, uh, yeah, you, you, you heard me and maybe that was, you know, not, not the best way for, uh, for, for my confession to come out. She admits, uh, but she says, I'll, I'll prove to be, m- uh, much more reliable than those that are more cunning, perhaps. Um, so that's maybe the first place I would go go to say, you know, to back up that idea that she has this this unique um, this unique resolve. Um, yeah, and I, I can like go that. a lot deeper with this too because I, I started thinking about this, and then I started like every time you start thinking seriously about something in Shakespeare, <laughs> be it uh, essential or incidental, um, you mm-hmm. have a difficult time finding the bottom uh, of it. That's yeah, excellent point. Um, so I don't know, sincere, authentic. I added on to that. She's beyond part, part of how she defines sincerity um, is she is beyond the reach of, of forms or of constraints. She almost throws off in her, in her uh, feelings of uh, the normal bounds of like the first one she starts with is with the name, right? She's like, Romeo, mm. Romeo, wherever are the Romeo, you know, deny your father, you know, refuse your name. Or if you won't swear to be my love and I'll do it, you know, I'll drop yeah. the Capulet. So, so first uh, thing that she can drop and still be herself or even be more essentially herself is the name and all that goes with that. Um, mm. My family identity, uh, my, and that's, that's her history too, in a way, right? Her, um, uh, that's found in the family she, she grows up with. So that's her father too. Um, uh, and I think, you know, we're kind of concerned with those things like those in, in our time, we talk about stories, we talk about external markers, you know, race is big. We're talking about that, right? How much mm-hmm. I fit into that container, mm-hmm. you know, how much that's definitive of me, gender, uh, sexual orientation or practice, right? These are the containers, you know, mm-hmm. that we're all in instead of adding herself into more of those, she shows herself able to be herself by removing, she can remove each of those containers actually, and and and, and be more even more, I don't know, more authentically herself or more deeply herself mm. by by peeling off these layers. It's not of an onion because there's something inside there, mm. and I think it's a self. When I started down this path, the word self appears, you know, yeah. um, several several times. So she has this almost um, supernatural, that's probably going too far, but this ability to stand outside of herself, which made me think of the word ecstasy. Mm. We're in a, a scene of, you know, impending, you know, erotic connection. So the word ecstasy suggests itself. But I, but I believe that word um, uh, means literally the standing outside of oneself, right? Yep. To stand outside of. And, and so she is heading toward this, not just in a, you know, in a sexual sense, but in like a full entire sense of, of Romeo has taken her outside of all the little things that she's contained yeah. in the little Russian nesting dolls. She's opened yeah, them up yeah, yeah. and opened them up. And and it seems like her. you're describing an early, like she's an early character in Shakespeare's corpus, right? It's an earlier play. 
Yeah. I mean, what you just said to me is the description of his best characters. Yeah. Okay. Don't you think? Like yeah. that's if when people say like, okay, why, what's, what's Shakespearean about Shakespeare? There's a lot of answers to that. And one of them is what you're saying about his, his best characters hmm. is that their way of being in the world has numerous layers and is infinitely interesting to think about. And one never gets bored by. Yes. Yes. Um, and, 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 and I think that thing when she says, when she says, um, I could be more strange um, if, you know, if you wanted me to, I don't think her concern is to seduce uh, Romeo, mm-hmm. which is often what strangeness <clears throat> is used for, right? right? As, as, a, as a tool of, of, sedu- of seduction to right. play, you know, to play the game. Right. Um, but she's concerned that, that she'll a- appear superficial. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. that he won't believe what she's protecting is not her, her, her appeal to him. Right. But the authenticity of her feelings. She's like, no, I, I'm totally in love with you. We can play any games you want, but right. I'm, I'm, you know, it's done. Yeah, you know, it's it, <laughs> right. it, it's over. But the risk for this character um, is that I think, you know, if I were a fiction writer, fiction writers, we, we run into what what I'd say, you know, what's harder to do is to strip these externalities off and still have a character of hmm. uh, of substance because what remains when she's not. Um, you know, when, when she's not a Capulet and, and when she's not a person from her, her time and place, which I think a lot of efforts are being made to, to, to remove those from her. Yeah. Uh, for, for, from her identity. Right, right. Um, and, and they're willing to trade self. So it's, you know, she's standing outside of herself and she wants to take on Romeo's, uh, Romeo's self, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and she wants Romeo to take on her uh, herself. Yeah. Um, He's wildly outmatched here, by the way. Don't you think so? <laughs> I mean, the poor kid. <laughs> you know, you and I have chaperoned proms, and this sometimes you, this <laughs> yeah. is a lame analogy, but you see this like really mature eighteen-year-old girl who's basically, I mean, not only looks because she's dressed up, but just is socially aware, emotionally intelligent, put together, can talk to strangers, and her boyfriend who might be really nice. Just as excited about the ice cream for dessert a lot of times. You know what I mean? So Romeo, this is a really terrible analogy, but I, no, I'm with you. I love the idea of um, beyond the reach of constraints. And I feel like that's a huge part of Shakespeare's greatest characters is they, they, they live inside of a set of predictable cultural expectations that they're too big mm. for. And so much of the conflict that lives in whatever play that is, uh, those respective plays, um, has to do with those, you know, stretching against those those constraints. I think that's really a, a good yeah. way of putting it. So there's an obvious uh, bit to it, maybe. I think she's a believable character. Do you think so? Maybe that's what I mean by obvious. Like, yeah, and I don't think that's a small feat. You know what I mean? Like I think I think creating okay, I'm going to create a 13 year old girl who there's no evidence she's ever been romantically interested in anyone. I look to like if looking liking moves. She has no idea. Yep. Uh, there's no Match.com for 13-year-olds in Verona back then. <laughs> so um, her main source of company is this nurse who I think loves her, but it, it's not exactly an enriching presence. So from that, she ends up, you know, going at, like taking incredible risks. And, um, you know, this whole, this whole scene speaks to her. I just think it's incredibly... It, it's an achievement to tell me how the play is going to end and then surprise me throughout the play. Yes, right. And I think, you know, some of the stuff you pointed to speaks to that. Yeah. Um, 
And she's looking for, from Romeo, and this I kind of want to, you know, as a part of this, I actually want to pick up on in the, uh, in the subtle but poignant, so I don't want to give that away yet, but, yep. but, but a piece of this is, um, uh, of a related point about this is what Juliet's looking for from Romeo is, is also uh, him, himself, um, for him to be um, uh, authentically in love with her in, in exactly the same mm-hmm. in exactly the same way, and I think in a very subtle way that again I'm going to save this for our, for our next point. Um, she protects that idea. Um, there's something that I I haven't noticed for years, and I think it's significant. You can tell me whether you think it is or not. No, um, not. Uh, related to this, but you know we know Romeo says says you know says says the same thing. Um, uh, when when she says, "Hey, who's there listening to me?" He's like, "I don't know how to answer this." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I don't know how to answer this. But said every guy you, ever. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I'm but not I'll sure say, what to say next. I'll though. say whatever, um, uh, whatever I should say to be to be yours. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so if that means ditching again, stripping off, stripping off. Yeah. wouldn't he? Uh, right. I'll get rid of my name. I'll be new baptized. Call me something else. Great. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah, I'll right. change my birth certificate for you. <laughs> yeah. I'll drive a new car. I'll, I'll right. move out of my house. Whatever you want. I'm all in. Yep. And, and that's the only thing she believes in. Because when he says, I'll swear, you know, I'll swear to it. I'll swear by the by moon. The moon. Oh, not that. Yeah. But how about just swearing anyway? Let's not swear at all. You know, she says, or if you've got to. Uh, because to swear is a subtle point. To make an oath is to almost say you need one. Right. right, exactly. And it's and like so a prenup. That puts doubt on the table. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's so a good point. I haven't thought of that. That makes life. I think <laughs> she has. Um, and in fact, mm. one of the other things I would say she slips out of the bonds of is almost the bonds of language. If you really want to push that, which I do, of course, uh, push this thing of all the things she's slipping out of. Yeah. She doesn't want to hear it. She says she, she wants it to be true. And uh, all right, this is my subtle but pointy point. I keep coming up to it, so I just have just to just do it, it. and right, I'll go right, back right, and right. do whatever. All right, yeah. I mean, it's, he Romeo never says it. He never says that he loves her. He doesn't say that. She mm-hmm. says that's what she wants. She wants him to say, "Exchange your true love's vow for mine." Yeah. What says. satisfaction can you have? Oh, to exchange yeah, true yeah. love's vow. Oh, okay. Yeah. She says, "I've already given mine. I wish I could take it back so I could give it again." Yeah, yeah. And then when he starts to say it, she interrupts him again. Mm-hmm. And then she says, okay, three words, and then this, this night will be over. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the three words, I love you, I guess. But he never says it. She says she doesn't allow him to say it. She doesn't want him to say it. Mm-hmm. She wants it to be true beneath and deeper than speech. Definitely right. beneath and deeper than a contract, right? Right. That's what she says. Or hormonal urges, which he have, he's already expressed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which he puts out. But, uh, but, but she wants to... Uh, she wants this this expression to be deeper than than, than contract, deeper than hormonal um, urges, mm-hmm. and I think even deeper than language because she cuts him off. She yeah. she doesn't let it happen. And in fact, the only the, the satisfaction that she'll get um, is that he shows up with a plan tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know that that's it. But the, but it never it never actually happens. The exchange right. of the vows doesn't happen. She yeah. says she already did it. He overhears her saying it, but not to him. She's not confessing her mm-hmm. love to him. She's saying it out loud to herself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of brilliant. Right. No, that's good stuff. I'll, um, I might just touch on some stuff in the balcony scene if that's okay. And, yeah, and some it. of this Stay might resonate here. with what you said. Unfortunately, this might be a discussion of two people just agreeing with each other. How terrible. I know. No. Um, I, so I noticed this, this sort of five, to me, distinct moments of this scene, and I'm not going to take a long time with any of them. Yeah. Okay. So the first are two little monologues. 
So there's the uh, but off what light through yonder window breaks. Yeah. And it's Romeo sort of just reflecting on the beauty of this person coming out of of her window of her house or her porch, however you want to stage it. Mm-hmm. And then she talks and he riffs on the talking. But it's really just this this immediate, spontaneous boy in love. Immediate, spontaneous boy in love. And there it is. And she starts talking. And when she starts talking, um, she's talking about identity. She's not talking about... Yeah isn't he handsome? Like she never says that or, you know, it's um, deny thy father, refuse thy name. And then she goes on this sort of metaphysical set of speculations about where we get our identity. To what extent is our identity wrapped in a name? It's not hand or foot nor arm nor face uh, by some other name belonging to a man. And then the famous line, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word was smell as sweet. It's one of those Shakespeare bumper stickers that we know because yeah. we're just in the world. Right, and it's right. a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, so, so her first thoughts are identity. His first thoughts are hot girl coming out of a house. Yeah. So I find, I'm, I'm, and I'm not judging. I, I want to resist judging an act to these two teenagers who have very little experience. I just think those differences are interesting to point out. Right. Um, secondly, I think um, on line 58 of, of act two, scene two, um, she asked the obvious question, um, who are you? Um, it's page 73 of the Folgers, the one we teach. Okay, got him. And he right. says, um, you know, she asks who he is and he says, uh, you know, my name is hateful to myself because enemy to thee, he's covering himself. Hmm. Um, and then she asks the next obvious question in line 67, how came thou hither? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, right. a, there's a, probably a fence. Um, it's a death sentence if our families fight again. My family hates your family. Like, it's a huge risk. Um, secondly... So in a way, like that shows her sort of managing the safety of a situation and not reacting totally with her feelings in her heart. I find that interesting. Hmm. Thirdly, um, on line 90, and I'm just skipping ahead. On line 90, which is on page 75, this is the beginning of the speech that you referred to a bunch of times. Okay. So I find this really interesting. And it's not only the conclusions she draws, but the thinking she does to get to them, her thinking out loud. She says, thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush paint my cheek for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight. Because she said a lot. She said her feelings. Fain would I dwell on form. And I'm struck by, you know, she's beyond the reach of forms. It's interesting. Yeah. Fain, fain deny what I have spoke, but farewell, compliment. Mm-hmm. Dost thou love me? It's one of those yeah. moments in Shakespeare where your brain can rest. I always tell my students, like, <laughs> yeah. when Hamlet says, I loved Ophelia, it's like, I know what all those words mean. I'm so excited, right? Um, <laughs> right, because Dost thou fame. love me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is thou, as opposed to you, thou is the familiar. Mm. The two and vu from French. Thou is the familiar. Okay. You is the formal. So they're using a sort of familiar, intimate language. Um, dost thou love me? I know you'll say yes. Cause you're like a teenage guy, right? I, thou will say I, and I'll take thy word yet. If thou swearest, thou mayst prove false. That's exactly what you were saying before at lovers perjuries. Jove laughs. Okay. Gentle Romeo. If you love pronounce it faithfully, or if thou thinks I'm too quickly one, and that's what you were talking about before I'll yeah. frown and, and be perverse and say no. And the, so you'll woo like, 
somehow this girl who probably hasn't left her room much knows all this. I don't know if she gets like yeah. Teen Vogue, yeah. the, whatever the medieval Verona version of Teen Vogue is. <laughs> but I always wondered reading this in my margin, says, how does she know this? How does she? It's not like parents in this world, whether it's medieval Verona or mm. Elizabethan London, there's no sense that they had, you know, long relationship conversations. I don't know. So I wonder, how does she know this, right? Right. Um, and that's where right. she says at the end of the speech, I'll, I'll be more strange if that's better. Like if, if playing hard to get is the more appropriate thing. So it's this real, like amazing, not only self-awareness, but awareness of what is supposed to happen when people like you and I talk versus, you know, like you're saying, the authenticity of how I'm actually feeling. And those are two yes. different things. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things, 112 down, is she doesn't just get him to propose. She, okay. she directs, writes, and stage manages the proposal. <laughs> um, swear not by the moon. Here's how you're going to swear. Here's how you're going to do this. Um, and she goes, in, she goes to go in her house, and he says, you're going to leave me unsatisfied. Right. So that's how. And she would end it right there, right? Line 130. It, that would, that yeah. would be the end of the night. Bye. Done. End scene. Yeah. We get to go to bed. So in line 149, it's what you were saying before. Three words, dear Romeo, and good night indeed. If that thy bent of love be honorable, like you're not a scumbag. Yeah. Thy purpose marriage, send yeah. me word tomorrow by one that I'll procure to come to thee. So I'll send you somebody and you give him the message. He'll get it to me. Mm-hmm. Where? And what this is, I could see my wife doing this, right? <laughs> Make sure you get a date. Make sure what the date is, the time. Right. Put it in your phone, you idiot, because you have no memory anymore. She knows to do this. It's like she's been married to Romeo for 25 years. It's amazing. (laughs) Where, what time, thou wilt perform the right, and all my fortunes at thy foot I'll lay. She's even aware that a girl marrying a guy means she's property. Yeah. I mean, just it's what it is, right? She's in this universe. She becomes his, but in a real literal possessive way. And follow thee, my lord, throughout the world. Yep. And the last thing I just want to point out really quickly is there's certain times in horror movies where there's a sound in the middle of the night and you know the last thing the person should do is to get up and investigate. Yeah. They, but what's the problem? They don't know they're in a horror movie. That's the whole problem of horror movie. Right. right. So in line 198, sweet, so would I. She says, yet huh. I would kill thee with much cherishing. <laughs> and I just want to say, sweetheart, you're in a Shakespearean tragedy. Don't say that. That's terrible. <laughs> right. right. It's like um, saying, I'll be right back. It's right? Like, yeah, yeah, right. You're not right. coming right back. I'm just going to come downstairs. I'll you're be getting right three back. beers with your friends. <laughs> um, uh, so th- that's my like kind of water skiing over the surface. And, and I guess the takeaway for me is uh, it's just really surprising that she seems to know these things. Okay. And, and, and she by far has the agency. I mean, she is managing yes. these moments, not yes. him. Yes. Um, he manages the moment to, to give him credit. He's in the room, in, in yeah. this case, in the yard. He right. gets there, which is a super risk. So he does do that, which then enables her to direct the rest. Right. And, and she asks him, how did you get here? Right. <laughs> That's by right. Who's, uh, but doing? there's a second time. The other one, after the one you mentioned, she says, by who's at line 84, by whose direction mm. thou out this place? Uh, by love that first did prompt me to inquire. That's a good um, answer. That's yes. good. That's a really good answer. That's good stuff. But it also is it also is pointing to the only motivations, the only explanations for what's going on here that just, you know, happened a couple of hours ago, all of which will wrap up before the weekend. 
um, you know, tragically. <laughs> yeah, this is some weekend. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This really is a full um, weekend. <laughs> where did it all come from? How does this happen? Mm. And this is another way in which, you know, I like this. To me, if there's a pro, you know, we talk about, you and I have mentioned things like this, like is Shakespeare somehow trying to handicap himself or give himself a challenge? Maybe one of the, you know, and you, you know, we mentioned, you know, he, he gives the whole pot away at the beginning and then writes it. What about another challenge of what essentially is love made of, right? Where does it come from? Um, nobody knows. You can't make it happen. You can't orchestrate it. Right. It just falls out of the sky, you know? So mm -hmm. it may as well, all of our explanations may as well be Greek mythology, you know, stories of <laughs> yeah. Hecuba and Niobe and whoever, um, for, for all the truth our stories have in them. And Romeo says that. So by love, that first, I mean, that sounds a little corny, but also yeah. the scene is, is filled with, I think, like essentialist um, falling in love uh, mm -hmm. elements. And that's and that is how he found this place—the same person, thing, it that and that um, that prompted him to inquire in the first place, it guided him here. That's how that's how he got there, and he flew over the wall with love. Yeah, right. Which is a little corny, but uh, but I like, uh, but but I like that piece. But they're both ready to empty themselves out for the other. I yeah. mean, Juliet's "I'll follow you around the world and lay all my treasure at your feet." You know. It goes even further than that. If right. you think that's a little too self-abnegating or too, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know if she's allowing him to railroad up. She goes even further than that. She's ready to replace uh, herself with mm. the god of her idolatry. Idolatry. Right? And he's and he's ready to do the same. He's ready to give up his name, his identity. Yeah. yeah. So it isn't a completely one-sided thing. They're both sort of feeding off that idea of... yeah. Why don't um, we just determine to, to do anything to get rid of any obstacle ever? Like yes. that's what they're, you know. Yes. They're both in this uh, ecstasis, this yeah. uh, ecstasy of standing outside of themselves and replacing themselves in some weird way uh, with, uh, with the other, with the other yeah. self. The, um, the only thing that they'll believe in. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to be the sort of person that can be with this beloved. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's so, it's so, it's so intense. Um, it's so stripped down. Um, could I throw out, um, unless you have more to add, um, can I throw out my surprising or subtle or poignant point? It's short. Really? Yeah, let's do it. And this is, this is like, this is a big nerd fest. I just find this really interesting and I'll be full disclosure. I learned to look for this, um, from Ben Crystal, the actor, his father, David is a linguist yeah. who has deduced what Shakespeare's original pronunciations sound like. So they do like original pronunciation productions of Shakespeare plays. And it's really, really interesting. Um, he, he talks a lot about, you know, characters finishing each other's thoughts and how the plays are either lines of blank verse, unrhymed, I'm a pentameter or prose. Um, but when Shakespeare wants to, wants you to feel like these characters are connected, he often has them finish lines of each other. Okay. So you see it Lady Macbeth and Macbeth after he after he murders um, Duncan and you see um, you see it in the opening soliloquy. I think I talked about it in Act One. Mm -hmm. So the, this is just from Act Two, scene two, and I'm gonna read Juliet and Romeo. Sometimes it's Juliet talking first, sometimes it's Romeo. I'm not gonna say who. I'm just gonna read these lines and just be aware okay. that these are two people talking, but the two little chunks of speech make up one I'm a pentameter line. Okay. Okay. All right. No, that's not. Now, it, it's, it's incredibly nerdy. And I don't, you know, my students would say, do you think he meant to do? Well, yeah, because he can count to 10, number one. Yeah. Okay. Um, but number two, it's a musical way to show a connection between two people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
So here we go. This is not won't take long. Take all myself. I take thee at thy word. So stumblest on my counsel by a name. What shall I swear by? Do not swear at all. And I'll believe thee if my heart's dear love. So thrive my soul a thousand times good night. Should I send to thee by the hour of nine? I would I were thy bird, sweet, so would I. And that's just in one scene, hours after they meet. We saw it in the sonnet. It continues. They're in each other's heads. Wow. And I just think that's really, really brilliant. And right. You know, they're again, singing, they're singing the same song. The same they're singing song, the same song. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think it's one of those things as teachers, we often shy away from things that look clinical like this. Right. But I just yeah. think it's good for students and all readers to know this thing is built in a certain way. Right. And it isn't built in a certain way. So necessarily we can write papers about it, but it's just because his original intent is to put bums in seats and to make money. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. But how, how else do we notice that people are close? We do pay attention to how they talk to each other. And in a play like this, this is a way to do it's not the only way, but it's a way to do that. So yes. I wanted to point that out. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So that's that's really your uh, your subtle, uh, yeah. but, but but poignant. Is there uh, the intensity of their closeness? Is that how you want to? Yeah, d done by uh, sort of how they they finish each other's thoughts so musically and so seamlessly. Yeah. You know, I think like I said in the last podcast, like how you know a lot of grandparents might you know. Can you go to the store to get milk? I know. I mean, I have to get milk. Like they just they've yeah. been around so long, right? They know. Right. Right. But they're doing this hours after they meet, which I find, yeah. I find real. I'm not yeah. landing on an interpretation of that fact yet. It's just, I think, I think when you go to the play and you're not worrying about writing a paper on the play, I think you can feel their connection. Yes. But sort of, if you look under the hood of the play, you start noticing, well, he builds it in a certain way. So you feel that they're connected. It isn't yeah. an accident. There's lots of teenagers that fall in love and lots of stories. This is right. peculiarly intimate and close and passionate and real, real fast. Yes. So, yeah. And, and, and for me, what's always on the table. And I think the point you're making helps enormously is, 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 uh, just plausibility, right? Is it, is it believable? And it has to pass that test. All good mm. narratives have to be plausible, yeah. you know, believable. And, and what's happening here is incredible in some ways. Um, so points like that, that help drive the reader into believing of their connection. Um, yeah, that's enormous. That's enormous. So that's good. That's a good subtle point that you'd have to look closely to. And I think we should teach our students to do that, even though, as you say, we may shy away from it, um, to drive to drive into the text. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, you reviewed a lot of the lines. Mine, mine comes down to, again, my subtle, um, <laughs> subtle point, but I think is essential, is that Romeo never says that he loves her. He does not confess it. Um, uh which you see in the lines, line 95, where Juliet asks, dost thou love me? That's the question on the table. Yeah. Then uh, at line 116, 117, what shall I swear by? So he's still trying to say, yeah, Just I love you. Just tell her you How love her, dude. It? Um, to you, she talks, talk, talk, don't swear. Although I joy in thee, I have no joy in this contract tonight. It's too mm. rash. It's too unadvised. It's too sudden. Right, too, and she's right, like the lightning, which ceases to be air, one can say it lightens. <laughs> um, she's right. She enjoys the interaction with Romeo, mm -hmm. the real part. She doesn't enjoy the contract because on paper, this looks insane. Yeah. All right. So, two, what shall I swear by? Well, you know, you can swear by yourself or how about not swearing at all? He never quite gets around to doing it. And then she closes the scene. She says, all right, we're done. We're done here. Three words, dear Romeo, mm -hmm. and good night indeed. 
if thy bent be love. All right. And then that's it. Right. And then the plan that which you, which you laid out, but he never gets around to saying it. And I would yeah. say technically she never says that she loves him to him. Sure. Um, she says, I already said it. I already experienced it. And you overheard me talking to myself about it. Right. So it's a cool point. What's the worth of it? What's the value of it? I think to me, it's driving again. I have this like essentialist view of this love scene that we're trying to, 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 to try to, to explore um, mm. what love is and where it comes from. And it is beneath speech. Yeah. And this way she slips the bonds, not only of all these other things. Um, and uh, I mean, if you want, I mean, she, she's not, yeah, well, I'll leave it at that. I mean, she slips the bonds of language. Is there more essential? You know, she realizes the, um, uh, the insufficiency mm. of language or the problems with, with, with saying it. Yeah, and, and I think this is a conversation that could be numerous hours long. I think what's interesting to me about what you just said is that the play opens with language devolving into violence in one page. Yeah. So yeah. suddenly we're in act two. and lang- So what, what we're learning, mm. if, if our entire experience of romance is in Romeo and Juliet... Or, or human relations in general, we're learning the malleability of language, right? We're learning that language can lead people to kill each other in a mere moments, or language can make people fall in love because they speak sonnets to each other in their first car in mere moments. So uh, this yeah. is, the, and, and both of those have been put in front of us very early on in this story. Yes. Which is really interesting. And, and maybe you know, in parallel, the things beneath the language are themselves difficult to pin down. Why again, do these two families hate each other? Why do their servants fight in the street? Ancient. Exactly. There's no, no, reason. no one knows. There's no yeah. reason. And it, and, and it doesn't help to give a reason. In fact, it harms. Why are they in love? How did this happen? Was it sight? Was it, we don't know. Yep. I don't know. Same love and hate. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, you can't, I, it's very difficult to get out of the balcony scene when you're in act two. <laughs> right, it? right. Yeah. Um, is it possible? What do you have? What else do you have? What do you have for lingering? Do you have some lingering questions from Act uh, Two? What, what 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 lands for you? Yeah, I think um, you know teaching this to high school kids, and I know you and I teach it to freshmen. Different different curricula do different things in the sequence. Um, I think the the question of the alternate parent, alternate parents, the Friar Lawrence and the nurse which take place after the balcony scene. You know, Romeo goes to Friar Lawrence and asks him to marry. And that's a funny scene. Yeah. You know, they yeah, had yeah. stumble that run fast, you know, <laughs> slow down. Holy St. Francis, he said. So, um, so uh, you know, so I, I think teenagers love judging adults. I think they love judging their parents. They love, I know my kids love judging me. I know your kids are angelic, so that probably never happens, no, but maybe that's just in my house. It doesn't. They're loving. They're loving and kind. <laughs> They're just yes. thrilled when you come home every yes. day. Tell me about your They're day. They're appreciative of my parentage. <laughs> so I don't think it's unusual to look outside of your family when you're a certain age for mentoring. and for, that, that makes sense. Now, in, in the world of this play, yeah. I think you know, rich people in this day and age um, you know, didn't do a lot of the parenting that, you know, you and I were expected to do in, in, our, in our spouses when we right. had kids. So my, my lingering question is, do Friar Lawrence and the nurse, does Friar Lawrence love Romeo? Hmm. Um, and does the nurse love Juliet? Um, yeah. Because they, they're the ones that facilitate the marriage. These kids could love each other till the cows come home, but they can't get married without adult help. They can't get married without a priest, number one. They can't get married with... I mean, Juliet just can't wander around and go to Starbucks in Verona. 
So she needs, she needs the nurse to sort of remote control her a little bit or at least to navigate. So that's my question. Is, is this love or, or how, how would you describe this? So kids, I find love, like I said, love judging real live adults in their life. So when asking them um, that question usually yields some pretty interesting conversations. And I don't know what my answer is. I, I, I'm torn uh, because I'm always reminded that these two characters are just people and they're not reading this play. Um, they have their lives and their experience. And so it's, it's difficult. Well, that's good. Um, we touched on the nurse, whether the nurse really loves Juliet in our last um, podcast. And I think, I think that'll come up again. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, in an, in, in an important way. Um, and I think that is my question and the question I wrote down without talking to you ahead of time. My lingering question is actually kind of digging into that about Friar Lawrence. Um, is he a saint or is he a villain? I guess is the way I, yeah. I put this. And related to that is, does he really have, <clears throat> he's a villain if he doesn't, in relation to your question, if he doesn't really love Romeo, if he doesn't have Romeo's good uh, mm. and Juliet's um, good um, at heart, you know, in this plan. He does give a one line reason, right? Th th that you guys getting married might turn your household's rancor into pure love. Yep. This might be the only shot we have at peace. Yeah. So I never know, you know, on the one hand, peace is good, conflict's bad. I get it. Yeah. On the other hand, you're pawning off a couple of teenagers for diplomatic reasons. I don't know, right? Yeah. That, He's trying to orchestrate peace and justice in a city, you know, at, right. or at a town level, whatever it is. The city yeah. Level. This is... This is the temptation of every politician. It made me think you can think of him as a politician. <laughs> I think you can. Yeah. Who's come in to fix things. Mm -hmm. And every politician knows the right answer and they're all just about to fix it and would have had not the, you know, those right. meddling kids gotten in the way. <laughs> right? Did you just throw Scooby-Doo yeah. into act two? <laughs> yeah, I did. So I, I, I hope did. people are appreciating uh, that. <laughs> and, but it never quite works out. Yep. It quite works out that way. And some politicians are, I think, the more honest ones, at least philosophically, are the ones that kind of know they can't, you know, that their job is a little bit right. different. They acknowledge more, limitations. Yeah, yeah, they're more caretakers. Um, others who are usually radicals of some kind or another don't take that view. They know the right answer and they know they can enact it. You know, right, they're going right. to set things right. Right. Um, yeah, Friar Lawrence that might fear, be that. That's that fear I have, have about him. And part of the reason to doubt him, I think, goes to that line you were talking about. It's uh, line. It's Act 2, Scene 3, line 95. Um, when he's still chiding Romeo about yeah. Rosaline, right? And she says, oh, she knew well. <laughs> Thy love did read by rote that could not spell. That's a hilarious <laughs> that's line. That's great, yeah. But, and then the next sentence... Ah, but come, young waverer, come, go with me. In one respect, I'll thy assistant be. So right on the heels of saying, oh, she knew. She yeah, knew. yeah. Um, he says, oh, let's jump in. I'll help you out. And then, and then he starts, even though he is full of wisdom, you know, his opening scene, he throws out, you know, these, um, uh, the antitheses that you find in nature, you know, that even virtue, and, and, it, and it applies to the moral realm, even virtue mm. can become vice. And vice, when paired with the right kind of action, can actually become, right? I mean, this, yep. is, this is nice, and he is helpful, but he says things that he should follow and doesn't. You know, mm. as you mentioned, wise and slow, they stumble, that, that you know, that, that run fast. Yep. And I'll see you here in an hour to marry you to right. Juliet. <laughs> right. right. Like, wait, which, you know. 
So I think there's something, yeah, there's something to question there. Um, yeah, are good intentions enough when you're dealing with volatile kids right. or volatile people? And, and when you're dealing with, with reality, I mean, what he does, we give him a pass for doing because your own Romeo and Juliet side. But mm. what he does is, uh, is pretty awful. You know? Yeah, and I find as a teacher navigating this conversation is, you know, 15-year-olds aren't thinking like adult parents of teenagers. So I find I have to resist the urge to say everything we just said and to let them talk it out for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it looks like, yeah, they're empowering Romeo and Juliet to live their, live their best lives and live their dreams. <laughs> Thank um, you, Oprah. Thank you. Yeah, yes. right? You know? Um, you do you, sweetheart. <laughs> um, so, you know... I. But I think what often happens is the more they have time to think about it, and then as the play unfolds, um, they realize that love isn't always just following the directions of the person who wants something. Yeah. So it's, but it's, I, th right. I think it's messy. I, I think, you know, and I, I think it's also important to acknowledge that Fire Lawrence and the nurse have their own stories, some of which we know, some of which we don't. Right. They're real people. Right. They're figuring stuff out. They live in a city where people can kill each other at any minute. So yeah. th that's interesting. Yes. Yes. And there's more of those lines that could be troubling if you allow them uh, right at the end of the act. And that'll get us there. I think, you know, scene six, it's the, you know, it's the wedding, which happens off stage, I guess. But Friar Lawrence says these violent delights have violent ends. Yes, they do. And then they're trying to die like fire and power. They consume each other. And then he goes on. These other mm -hmm. almost Polonius-like yeah, you know, right, yeah. uh, little nuggets of wisdom you, know, you throw over your shoulder and they're just worthless. Yep. So I don't know who he's talking to right there. Mm -hmm. He may be talking to himself. You know? yeah. I'm thinking, oh, crap, what am I doing? Um, you know, love moderately, love doth so. You know, long love doth so, too swift to rise a tardy. You know, yeah. slow. Nice, nice. But in the Telling end, Romeo and Juliet to love moderately is pretty funny. <laughs> Right, while he's marrying them hours, you know, yeah, yeah. hours after they've met with a view to, uh, you know, some kind of utopian vision of Verona, I guess, you know, just on the horizon. Yeah. Um, so that's that's reason enough to doubt him. So mm. that's a nagging, but that's a nagging question because, you know, that's not his whole story, as you said. It's not even the whole story that's on the page. Right. And he comes through in his important ways, which which we'll see in uh, in Act 3 in our next in our next podcast. Um. Does that get us there? Yeah, I think that's good. Okay. All right. So there's Romeo and Juliet, uh, Act 3, um, uh, Act 2, sorry, broken that's down right. into um, uh, three big questions. Um, and uh, I think those are good. Uh, I think those are good places to go uh, to think about uh, this act. All right. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Thanks Paul.